the audience has spoken and we are doing Harriet Beecher Stowe this month on the Only You podcast and we are going to be doing Uncle Tom's Cabin today. Thank you guys for listening and thank you for sharing me and I did see that some of you actually did uh, share the podcast. I do appreciate that. Made me feel good to see the audience go up. I do appreciate that. Um, This is July. It's Minority Mental Health Awareness Month and you never know who's going through what out there and we all go through these little cycles in life and they're usually in threes like if you get a scratch on your arm it heals in threes you know you break a bone it heals in three months um you know things like that but in reality we never know what somebody else is going through and uh sometimes it takes courage to sit down and manifest putting pen to paper of daily habits routines that you have and kind of realizing that maybe you could heal yourself if you paid attention to kind of the stuff that you're doing and putting into your bodies um if you know somebody that's actually you know upset or like if you're in a relationship where somebody gets upset sometimes and you don't know why or you're thinking that oh maybe it's my fault maybe that person has what's called an anxious attachment style and sometimes when their partner because like with an anxious person they only their systems only get activated by their partner when they feel like their core values are kind of being infringed upon but in reality the anxious system gets set off because that person puts every single value into their partner like the facial gestures of their partner um because in conversation mostly verbal is like nine percent and the rest is all body language so a person with an anxious attachment style when that system gets activated they get wild you know and try to go on the defense and defend themselves and In reality, they don't realize that they just need to be nurtured and they have to find a way to um, create kind of like roadblocks in their mind and realize that they need to change the neurotransmitters that there's ways to realize, hey, I'm being triggered. Hey, I need to slow down or in your partner too. Your partner has to be aware that, you know, they're body language and uh, words could affect them and there's other types of attachment styles you guys can check those out but today we're going to be doing uncle tom's cabin here on the only you podcast um harriet beecher stowe actually um has landmarks that are dedicated into her memory in ohio florida maine and connecticut there's location uh, uh, excuse me these locations actually represent different periods in her life like her father's um house where she grew up and also where she wrote uncle tom's cabin which it's an anti-slavery novel and it pushed harriet beecher stowe into instant international fame and it caused a lot of people to want to stop slavery and before you know the emancipation proclamation she was a great person and uh it affected a lot of people of her time. Um, Harry Beecher Stowe's house is in actually Cincinnati, Ohio, for anybody that's kind of wondering where that's at. And her father was a preacher, and he greatly affected her with uh, the 
pro-slavery movement after the Cincinnati riots in 1836. And Harriet Beecher Stowe uh, actually lived there until she got married. So that's kind of cool. And you could actually visit visit uh, Cincinnati and see where she grew up and stuff like that. I want to get kind of right into the read because it is an amazing read and I want to share more of it with you guys than I've been able to in the past. Hopefully I can read well today and not stutter and stumble and follow my words. Again, you guys, I'm so grateful for you guys share me with a friend and promote my podcast. I do really appreciate that. And today is, well, it's July and it's um, Mental Health Awareness Month for minorities and those are things I just need to be aware of that, um, you know, racial, ethnic, gender, and sexual minorities often suffer from uh, poor mental health outcomes due to multi-factors, including inaccessibility of high-quality mental health serv- uh, care services and cultural stigma surrounding mental health care. Like, oh, it's not cool, man. People are going to think you're crazy, bro. Well, no, they're not. You know, dim- uh, discrimination and overall lack of awareness of all the different entities out there to help people with uh, mental health problems, honestly. And this is chapter one of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Late in the afternoon of a chilly day in February, two gentlemen were sitting alone over their wine in a well-furnished dining parlor in the town of Paducah in Kentucky. There were no servants present, and the gentlemen, with chairs closely approaching, seemed to be discussing some subject with great earnestness. For convenience sake, we have said hitherto two gentlemen. One of the parties, however, when critically examined, did not seem, strictly speaking, to come under the species. He was a short, thick-set man with coarse, common features, and that swaggering air of the pretension which marks a low man who is trying to elbow his way upward in the world. He was much overdressed in a gaudy vest of many colors, a blue handkerchief bedropped gaily with yellow spots and arranged with a flaunting tie quite in keeping with the general air of the man. His hands, large and coarse, were plentiful, bedecked with rings, and he wore a heavy gold watch chain with a bundle of seals of pretentious size and a great variety of colors attached to it, which in the door of conversation... He was in the habit of flourishing and jingling with evident satisfaction. His conversation was in free and easy defiance of Murray's grammar and was garnished at convenient intervals with various profane expressions, which not even desire to be graphic in our account shall induce us to transcribe. His common, Mr. Shelby, had the appearance of a gentleman and the arrangements of the house and the general air of the housekeeping indicated easy and even opulent circumstances. As before stated, the two were in the midst of an earnest conversation. This is the way I should arrange the matter, said Mr. Shelby. I can't make trade that way. I positively can't, Mr. Shelby, said the other, holding up a glass of wine between his eye and the light. Why, the fact is, Haley, Tom is an uncommon fellow. He is certainly worth the sum anywhere. Steady, honest, capable, managed my whole farm like a clock. You mean honest niggers go? Said Haley, helping himself to a 
glass of brandy. No, I mean really. Tom was a good, steady, sensible, pious fellow. He got religion at a camp meeting four years ago, and I believe really did get it. I've trusted him since then with everything I have, money, house, horses, and let him come and go around the country. And I always found him true, square, and everything. Some folks don't believe that there's pious niggas, Shelby. And Haley said with candid flourish of his hand, but I do. I had a fellow now. And this year, last night, lot took uh, Orleans. I had a fellow now in this year, last lot, I took to Orleans. Twas as good as a meeting now, really, to hear that critter pray, and he was quite gentle and quiet-like. He fetched me a good sum, too, for I bought him cheap of a man that was obliged to sell out. So I recognized 600 on him. Yes, I consider religion a valuable thing in a nigga. When it's the genuine article and no mistake, well, time's got the real article. If ever a fellow had, rejoined the other. Why, last fall, I let him go to Cincinnati alone to do business for me and bring home $500. Tom says, I to him, I trust you because I think you're a Christian. I know you would cheat. Tom comes back, sure enough. I knew he would. Some low fellows, they say, said to him, Tom, why don't you make tracks for Canada? Old master trusted me and I can't. They told me about it. I am sorry to part with Tom, I must say, but I let him cover the whole balance of the debt. You would, Haley, if you had any conscience. Well, I've got just as much conscience as any man in business can afford to keep. Just a little, you know, to swear by, as twerp said the trader jocarily, and then I'm ready to do anything in reason to oblige friends, but this year, you see, is a little too hard on a fellow, a little too hard. The trader sighed contemptibly and poured out some more brandy. Well then, Haley, how will you trade? said Mr. Shelby after an uneasy interval of silence. Well, haven't you a boy or gal that you could throw in with Tom? Hmm, none that I could well spare to tell the truth. It's only hard necessity makes me willing to sell it all. I, I don't like parting with any my hands. That, that, that's a fact. Here's the door open and a small quadrant boy between four and five years of age entered the room. There was something in his appearance remarkably beautiful and engaging. His black hair, fine as floss silk, hung in the glossy curls about his round, dimpled face while a pair of large dark eyes, full of fire and softness, looked out from beneath the rich, long lashes as he peered curiously into the apartment. Gay robe of scarlet and yellow plaid, carefully made and neatly fitted, set off to advantage the dark and rich style of his beauty, and a certain comic air of assurance blended with bashfulness showed that he had been not unused to being petted and noticed by his master. Hello, Jim Crow, said Mr. Shelby whistling and snapped a bunch of raisins toward him. Pick up that now. The child's 
scampered with all his little strength after the prize while his masters laughed. Come here, little Jim Crow, said he. The child came and the master patted the curly head and chucked him under the chin. Now, Jim, show the gentleman how you can dance and sing, the boy commenced. One of those wild, grotesque songs common among the Negroes and a rich, clear voice accompanying his singing with many comic evolutions of the hands, feet, and whole body, all in perfect time to the music. Bravo, said Mr. Haley, throwing him a quarter of an orange. Now, Jim, walk like an Uncle Cujo. When he was had that rheumatism, said his master, instantly, the flexible limbs of the child assumed the appearance of the deformity and distortion as with back humped up and his master's stick in his hand, he hobbled about the room, his childish face drawn into a doleful pucker and spitting from right to left in imitation of an old man. Both gentlemen laughed uproariously. Now, Jim, said his master, show us how Elder Robbins leads the Psalms. The boy drew his chubby face down to formable length and commenced toning a psalm tune through his nose with impeccable gravity. Hurrah! Bravo! What a youngin', said Ailey. That's a chaps of case, I promise you. Tell you what, said he, suddenly clapping his hand on Shelby's shoulder, fleeing that chap, and I'll settle business. I will. Come now. If that ain't doing the thing up about the rightest. At this moment, the door was pushed gently open, and a young quadrant woman, apparently about 25, entered the room. There need only a glance from the child to her to identify her as its mother. There was the same rich, full dark eye with its long lashes, the same ripples of the silky black hair. The brown of her complexion gave way on the cheek to a perceptible flush, which deepened as she saw the gaze of the strange man fixed upon her in bold and undisgusted admiration. Her dress was of the neatest possible fit and set off to advantage her finely molded shape. A delicately formed hand and a trim foot ankle were items of appearance that did not escape the quiet eye of the traitor, while used to run up at a glance the points of a fine female article. Well, Eliza, said her master, as she stopped and looked hesitantly at him, I was looking for Harry, please, sir, and the boy bounded toward her, showing his spoils which he had gathered in the skirt of his robe. Well, take him away, then, said Mr. Shelby, and hastily she withdrew, carrying the child on her arm. By Jupiter, said the trader, turning to him in admiration, there's an article. Now, you might make your fortune on that our girl in Orleans any day. I've seen over a thousand in my day paid down for gals not a bit handsomer. I don't want to make my fortune on her, said Mr. Shelby, dryly, and seeking to turn the conversation, he uncorked a bottle of fresh wine and asked his companion's opinion of it. Capital, sir. First chop, said the trader. Then turning and slapping his hand firmly on Shelby's shoulder, he added, 
Come how will you trade about that gal? What shall I say for her? What'll you take? Mr. Haley. She is not to be sold, said Shelby. My wife would not part with her for her weight in gold. A a woman always say things, cause they had no sort of calculations. Just show them how many watches, feathers, and trinkets one's weight in gold would be, and that alters the case, I reckon. I tell you, Haley, this must not be spoken of. I say no, and I mean no, said Shelby, decidingly. Well, you'll let me have the boy, though, said the trader. You must own... I've come down pretty handsomely for him. What on earth can you want from the child, said Shelby? Why, I've got a friend that's going in this year branch of this business, wants to buy up handsome boys to raise for the market. Fancy articles entirely sell for waiters and so on to richens. That can pay for handsomans. It sets off one of your great places and real handsome boy to open up doorway and tend. They fetch a good sum and this little devil is such a comical musical concern. He's just the article. I would rather not sell him, said Mr. Shelby thoughtfully. The fact is, sir, I'm a humane man and I hate to take the boy from his mama. Sir, oh, you do, La said, yes, something of that, our nature, I understand perfectly, it is might unpleasant getting on with women, sometimes I, I always hate these years, screeching, screaming times, they are mighty unpleasant, but as I manage this business, I generally avoid them, sir, now, what if you get the gale off a day or a week or so, then the thing's done quietly all over before she comes home? Your wife might get her some earrings or a new gown or some truck trunk to make her up with her. I'm not, excuse me, I'm afraid not. Lord bless you, yes. These critters ain't like white folks, you know. They gets over things only manage right. Now, they say, said Haley, assuming a candid and confidential air, that this kind of trade is hardening to the feelings, but I never found it so. Fact is, I never could do things up the way some fellow manages business. I've seen them as would pull a woman's child out of her arms and set him up to sell, and she's screeching like mad all the time very bad policy damages the article makes them quite unfit for service sometimes i knew a real handsome gal once in norns as was entirely ruined by this sort of handling the fellow that was trading for her didn't want her baby and she was one of your real high sort when her blood was up i tell you she squeezed up her child in her arms and talked and went on real awful it kinder makes my blood run cold to think of it. And when they carried off the child and locked her up, she just went raving mad and died in a week. Clear waste, sir, of a thousand dollars just for one of management. There's, were, t is, 
It's always best to do the humane thing, sir. That's my experience. And the trader leaned back in his chair and folded his arm with an air of virtuous decision and apparently considering himself a second Wilberforce. So you can tell right there that, you know, just by the talk, this is a hard read because it's actually picking up on the dialect back then. And if you do know anything about language, if you actually speed up the southern draw in today's society, they're actually the closest related to Great Britain. Because if you speed up the southern draw syllables, it's actually a British accent. Just thought I'd throw that in there. And do you find your ways of managing do the business better than Tom's, said Mr. Shelby? Why, yes, sir. I may say so. You see, when I... I excuse me. You see, when... Anyways, can I takes a little care about the unpleasant parts like selling youngins and that get the gals out of the way, out of sight, out of mind, you know. And when it's clean done and can't be helped, they naturally gets used to it. Taint, you know, as if it was white folks that's brought up in the way of specting to keep their children and wives and all that. You know, that's fetched up properly. Blacks, you know, that fetched up properly had not no kind of speculations of no kind. So all these things come easier. I'm afraid mine are not properly brought up then, said Mr. Shelby. Suppose not. You Kentucky folks spoil your blacks. You mean, well, buy them, but... Taint no real kindness aren't all. Now, a black, you see, that's got to be hacked and tumbled round the world and told to Tom and Dick and the Lord knows who taint no to excuse me, taint no kind to be given on him notions and expectations and bringing on him up too well. For the rough and tumble comes all the harder on him. Now I venture to say your blacks would be quite chop fallen in a place where some of your plantation blacks would be singing and whooping like all possessed. Every man you know, Mr. Shelby, naturally thinks well of his own ways, and I think I treat blacks just about as well as it's ever worth while to treat them. It's, ha it's a happy thing to be satisfied, said Mr. Shelby, with a slight shrug and some perceptible feelings of a disagreeable nature. Well, said Mr. Haley, after they had both spoke silently, pick their nuts for a season. What do you say? I'll think the matter over and talk with my wife, said Mr. Shelby. Meantime, Haley, if you want the matter carried on in the quiet way you speak of, You'd best not let your business in this neighborhood be known. It will get out among my boys, and it will not be particularly quiet business getting away any of my fellows. If they know it, I'll promise you. Oh, certainly, by all means, Mum. Of course, but I'll tell you, in a devil of a hurry, and, a, and shall want to know... As soon as possible, what I may depend on, said he, raising and putting on his overcoat.
Well, call up this evening between six and seven. You shall have my answer, said Mr. Shelby, and the trader bowed himself out of the apartment. I'd like to have been able to kick the fellow down the steps, said he to himself as he saw the door fairly close with the impudent assurance, but he knows how much he has me at advantage. If anybody had ever said to me that I should sell Tom down south to one of those rascally traders, I should have said, is thy servant a dog that he should do this thing? And now it must come for aught I see and Eliza's child too. I know that I shall have some fuss with wife about that and for that matter about Tom too. Too much for being in debt. Hey, hey ho, the fellow sees his advantage and means to push it. Perhaps the mildest form of the system of slavery is to be seen in the state of Kentucky. The general prevalence of agricultural pursuits of a quiet and gradual nature, not requiring those periodic seasons of hurry and pressure that are called in the business of more southern districts, makes the task of the Negro a more healthful and reasonable one, while the master, content with a more gradual style of acquisition, has not those temptations to hard-heartedness which always overcome frail human nature when the prospect of sudden and rapid gain is weighed in the balance with no heavier counterpoise than the interest of the helpless and unprotected. Whoever visits some estates there and witness the good-humored indulgence of some masters and mistresses and the affectionate loyalty of some slaves might be tempted to dream the opt-fable poetic legend of a patriarchal institution and all that but over and above the scene there broods a portentous shadow, the shadow of law. So long as the law considers all these human beings with beating hearts and living affections only as so many things belonging to a master, so long as the failure or misfortune or imprudence or death of the kindest owner may cause them any day exchange, exchange of life of kind protection and indulgence for one of hopeless misery and toil, so long it is impossible to make anything beautiful or desirable in the best regulated administration of slavery. Mr. Shelby was a fair, average kind of man, good-natured and kindly and disposed to easy indulgence of those around him, and there have never been a lack of anything which might contribute to the physical comfort of the Negroes on his estate. He had, however, speculated largely and quite, lo quite loosely, had involved himself deeply and his notes to a large amount, had come into the hands of Haley, and this small piece of information is the key to the preceding conversation. Now, it had so happened that in approaching the door, Eliza had caught enough of the conversation to know that a trader was making offers to her master for somebody. She would gladly have stopped at the door to listen as she came out, but her mistress just then 
calling, she was obliged to hasten away. Still, she thought she heard the trader making an offer for her boy. Could she be mistaken? Her heart swelled and throbbed, and she involuntarily strained him so tight that the little fellow looked up into her face in astonishment. Eliza, girl, what ails you today? said her mistress. When Eliza had upset the wash pitcher, knocked down the workstand, and finally was abstractedly offering her mistress a long nightgown in place of a silk dress she had ordered her to bring from the wardrobe, Eliza started, Oh, missus, she said, raising her eyes, then bursting into tears. She sat down in a chair and began sobbing. Why, Eliza, what ails you, said her mistress. Oh, missus, missus, said Eliza. There's been a trader talking with master in the parlor. I heard him. Well, silly child, suppose there has. Oh, missus, do you suppose master would sell my Harry? And the poor creature threw herself into a chair and sobbed convulsively. Sell him? No, you foolish girl. You know your master never deals with those southern traders and never means to sell any of his servants as long as they behave well. Why, you silly child, why do you think why do you think would want to buy your Harry? Or excuse me, who do you think would want to buy your Harry? Do you think all the world are set on him as you are, you goosey? Come cheer up and hook my dress. There now, put my back hair up in that pretty braid you learned the other day and don't go listening at the door anymore. Well, but missus, you never would give your consent to, to nonsense, child. To be sure, I hadn't. What do you talk so for? I would as soon have been of my own children sold. But really, Eliza, you are getting altogether too proud of that little fellow. A man can't put his nose into the door, but you think you must be coming to buy he must be coming to buy him. Reassured by her mistress, confident tone, Eliza proceeded nimbly, nimbly and adroitly with her toilet laughing at her own fears as she proceeded. Miss Shelby was a woman of high class, both intellectually and morally. To that nature, mag nanimity and generosity of mind which one offer often marks as characteristic of the woman of Kentucky she added high moral and religious sensibility and principle carried out with great energy and ability into practical results her husband who made no professions to any particular religious character nevertheless reverenced and respected the consistency of hers and stood perhaps a little in it was that he gave her unlimited scope in all her benevolent efforts for the comfort instruction and improvement of her servants though he never took any decided part them in himself in fact if not exactly a believer in the doctrine of the efficiency of the extra good works of saints, he really seemed somehow or other to fancy that his wife had piety and benevolence 
enough for two to indulge a shadowy expectation of getting into heaven through her superabundance of qualities to which he made no particular pretension. The heaviest load on his mind after his conversation with the traitor lay in the foreseen necessity of breaking to his wife the arrangement contemplated, meeting the imper- excuse me, meeting the importunities and opposition which he knew he should have reason to encounter. Mr. Shelby being entirely ignorant of her husband's excuse me. Mrs. Shelby, being entirely ignorant of her husband's embarrassments and knowing only the general kindness of his temper, had been quite sincere in the entire incredibility with which she had met Eliza's suspicions. In fact, she dismissed the matter from her mind without a second thought and being occupied in preparations for an event visit, it passed out of her thoughts Entirely. Chapter 2 The Mother Eliza had been brought up by her mistress from girlhood as a petted and indulged favorite. The traveler in the South must often have remarked that particular air of refinement, that softness of voice and manner, which seems in many cases to be a particular gift to the quadrant and mulatto women. And mulatto I don't. I think I thought mulatto was like white and black, or maybe like a a yellow bone African American. These natural graces in the quadrant are often united with beauty of the most dazzling kind, and in most every case with a personal appearance prepossessing and agreeable. Eliza, such as we have described her, is not a fancy sketch but taken from remembrance as we saw her years ago in kentucky safer under the protecting care of her mistress eliza had reached maturity without those temptations which make beauty so fatal an inheritance to a slave she had been married to a bright and talented young mulatto man with who was a slave on a neighboring estate and bore the name of george harris this young man had been hired out by his master to work in a bagging factory where his adroitness and ingenuity caused him to be considered the first hand in the place. He had invented a machine for the cleaning of a hemp which, considering the education and circumstances of the inventor, displayed quite as much mechanical genius as Whitney's cotton gin. He was posed of a handsome person in a pleasing manner and was a general favorite in the factory. Nevertheless, as this young man was in the eye of the law, not a man, but a thing, all these superior qualifications were subject to the control of a vulgar, vulgar narrow-minded, tyrannical master. This same gentleman, having heard of the fame of George's invention, took a ride over to the factory to see what the intelligent chattel had been about. He was received with great enthusiasm by the employer, who congratulated him on his possessing such a valuable slave. He was waited upon over the factory, shown the machinery by George, who, in high spirits, talked so fluently, held himself so erect, looked so handsome and manly, 
that his master began to feel an uneasy consciousness of inferiority. What business had his slave to be marching around the country, inventing machines and holding up his head among gentlemen? He'd soon put a stop to it. He'd take him back and put him to hoeing and digging and see if he'd step about so smart. According, accordingly, to the manufacturer and all hands concerned were astounded when he suddenly demanded George's wages and announced his intention of taking him home. But Mr. Harris re remonstrated, the manufacturer isn't rather sudden. What if it is? Isn't the man mine? He would be willing, sir, to increase the rate of compensation. No object at all, sir. I don't need to hire any of my hands out unless I've mine to. But, sir, he seems particularly adapted to this business. Dare say he may be never was much adapted to anything that I set him about. I'll be about, excuse me, I'll be bound. But only think of his inventing this machine interposed one of the workmen rather unluckily. Oh yes, a machine for saving work it is. He'd invent that. I'll be bound. Let a black alone for that any time. They are all labor-saving machines themselves, every one of them. No, he shall tramp. George had stood like one transfixed at hearing his doom thus suddenly pronounced by a power that he knew was irresistible. He folded his arms, tightly pressed in his lips, but a whole volcano of bitter feelings burned in his bosom and sent streams of fire through his veins he breathed, he breathed short, and his dark eyes flashed like live coals, and he might have broken out into some dangerous embolition, had not the kindly manufacturer touched him on the arm and said in a low tone, Give way, George. Go with him for the present. We'll try to help you yet. The tyrant observed the whisper and conjectured its import, though he could not hear what was said and he inwardly strengthened himself in his determination to keep the power he possessed over his victim george was taken home and put to the meanest drudgery of the farm he had been able to repress every disrespectful word but the flashing eye the gloomy and troubled brow were part of the natural language that could not be repressed indubitably Signs which showed too plainly that the man could not become a thing. It was during the happy period of his employment in the factory that George had been and married his wife. During that period, being much trusted and favored by his employer, he had free liberty to come and go at discretion. The marriage was highly approved by Mr. Shelby, who, with a little womanly complacency, and matchmaking felt pleased to unite her handsome favorite with one of her own class who seemed in every way suited to her. And so they were married in her mistress' great parlor and her mistress herself adorned the bride's beautiful hair and orange blossoms and threw over it the bridal veil which certainly could scarce have rested on a fair head and there was no lack of white gloves and cake and wine 
of admiring guests who praised the bride's beauty and her mistress indulgence and liberty for a year or two eliza saw her husband frequently and there was nothing to interrupt their happiness except the loss of two infant children to whom she was passionately attached and whom she mourned with a grief so intense as to call for gentle remonstrance from her mistress who sought with maternal anxiety to direct her naturally pa naturally passionate feelings within the bounds of reason and religion after the birth of the little harry however she had gradually become tranquilized and settled and every bleeding tie and throbbing nerve once more entwined with that little life seemed to become sound and healthyful and eliza was a happy woman up to the time that her husband was rudely torn from his kind employer and brought under the iron sway of his legal owner the manufacturer true to his word visited mr harris a week or two after george had been taken away when as he hoped the heat of the occasion had passed away and tried every possible inducement to lead him to restore him to former employment you needn't trouble yourself to take talk any longer said he doggedly i know my business sir i did not presume to interfere with it sir i only thought that you might think it for your interest to let your man to us lent your man to us on the terms proposed oh i understand the matter well enough i saw your winking and whispering the day i took him out of the factory but you don't come it over me that way it's a free country sir the man's mine and i do what i please with him and that's that and so fell george's hope excuse me and so fell george's last hope nothing before him but a life of toil and drudgery rendered more bitter by every little smarting vexation and indignity which tyrannical ingenuity could advise a very human jurist once said the worst use you can put a man to is to hang him no there is another use that a man can be put to that is worse no there is another use that a man can be put to worse thank you guys for listening to the only you podcast and again i do appreciate you guys sharing me with a friend that that was awesome that was uh i have to touch base on that one more time because it just meant so much to me and i love you faithful followers and faithful listeners and faithful sharers this is the only you podcast this is our second season and this is uncle tom's cabin we're doing harriet beecher stowe this month and i do appreciate each and every one of you individuals and hopefully you get some good stuff out of this podcast because these writers are long dead and gone but you know what everything they wrote is still meaningful and is still teachable and learnable and there's a lot to be learned from this book in today's society about you know letting go and moving on and stepping forward into a greater light that we never once had until we realized that we were enough for ourselves and that there was a better life out there for us. We just have to get out of the environments that we're in and take a step and repeat. I don't know if you guys have ever listened to The Hidden Brain, but that's one of my favorite podcasts by uh, Shankin Avant. 
I think that's his name. I'm, I might have butchered it. Sorry, guy. But that's a really good podcast. And I wanted to share that with you guys today. I uh, I like the Morning Boost with uh, Scott Smith. That's another great podcast. There's so many awesome podcasts out there and podcasters. And thank you guys for listening to mine. It means so much to me. And without you guys, I wouldn't keep doing this. I thought it was a joke at first, and then I wound up finding that I love doing this, and I kind of raised my kids with reading books and being about books in their early years and they became pretty intelligent adults my daughter just turned 18 yesterday she actually bought a house and my son actually just bought a house too and he's 20 so i'm very proud of them and thank you guys for listening i'm a real person and i have problems too i'm not perfect but i try to learn something new every day because this life is about becoming the best human being you can be regardless of circumstances and setbacks and thank you so much for everything and thank you for believing in me because i believe in you chapter three the husband and the father miss shelby had gone on her visit and eliza stood in the veranda rather dejectedly looking after the retreating carriage when a hand was laid on her shoulder she turned and a bright smile lightened up her fine eyes george is it you how you frightened me well i am so glad you's come missus has gone to spend the afternoon so come into my little room and we'll have the time all to ourselves Saying this, she drew him into a neat little apartment opening on the veranda where she generally sat at her sew- and did her sewing within call of her mistress. How glad I am. Why don't you smile? And look at Harry. How he's grown. The boy stood shyly regarding his father through his curls holding close to the skirt of his mother's dress. Isn't he beautiful? said Eliza lifting his long curls and kissing him. I wish he'd never been born, said George bitterly. I wish I'd never been born myself. Surprised and frightened, Eliza sat down, leaned her head on her husband's shoulder and burst into tears. There now, Eliza, it's too bad for me to make you feel so poor, girl, said he. Fondly. It's too bad. Oh, how I wish you would never had seen me. You might have been happy. George, George, how can you talk so? What dreadful thing has happened or is going to happen? I'm sure we've been very happy till lately. So we have, dear, said George. Then drawing his child on his knee, he gazed intently in his glorious dark eyes and passed hands through his long curls. Just like you, Eliza. And you are the handsomest woman I ever saw, and the best one I ever wished to see. But, oh, I wish I'd never seen you, nor you me. Oh, George, how can you? Yes, Eliza, it's a all misery. Misery, misery. My life is bitter as wormwood. <clears throat> the very life is burning out of me. I'm a poor, miserable, forlorn drudge. I shall only drag you down with me, that's all. That's the use of our trying to do anything, trying to know anything, trying to be anything. That's the use of living. I wish I was dead. 
I want to pause right there and say that I know a lot of us out there have been through this in our life and felt this way too. And this is the stuff that we're talking about. These are the episodes that we go through in life that we have to learn how to, you know, reach out and get help with sometimes. Oh, now, dear George, that is really wicked. I know how you feel losing your place in the factory and you have hard master. You Excuse me, and you have a hard master, but... Pr- Pray, be patient, and perhaps something. Patient, said he, interrupting her. Haven't I been patient? Did I say a word when he came and took me away for no earthly reason from the place where everybody was kind to me? I've paid him truly every cent of my earnings, and they all say I work well. Well, it is dreadful, said Eliza, but after all, All he is is your master, you know. My master? And who made him my master? That's what I think of. What right has he to me? I'm a man as much as he is. I'm a better man than he is. I know more about business than he does. I am a better manager than he is. I can read better than he can. I can write a better hand. And I've learned it all myself. And no thanks to him, I've learned it in spite of him. And now, what right has he to make a dray horse of me, to take me from things I can do and do better than he can, and put me to work that any horse can do? He tries to do it. He says he'll bring me down and humble me, and he puts me to just the hardest, meanest, and dirtiest work on purpose. Oh, George, George, you frighten me. Why, I never heard you talk so. I'm afraid you'll do something dreadful. I don't wonder at your feelings at all, but oh, do be careful. Do do for my sake, for Harry's. I have been careful, and I have been patient. It's growing worse and worse, flesh and blood. Can't bear it any longer. Every chance he can get to insult and torment me he takes. I thought I could do my work well and keep quiet, on quiet, and have some time to read and learn out of work hours. But the more he sees I can do, the more he loads on me. He says that that enough I don't say anything. He says that he, excuse me, he says that though I don't say anything, he sees I've got the devil in me. And he means to bring it out. And one of these days it will come out in a way he won't like. And I'm mistaken. Or am I mistaken? Oh dear, what shall we do? Said Eliza mournfully. It was only yesterday, said George, as I was busily loading stones into a cart. That young Master Tom stood there slashing his whip. So near the horse that the creature was frightened. I asked him to stop as pleasant as I could. He just kept right on. I begged him again. And then he turned on me and began striking me. I held his hand. And then he screamed and kicked and ran to his father. I told him that I was was fighting him. He came in a rage and said he'd teach me who was my master. He tried to... Excuse me. He tied me to a tree and cut switches for young master and told him that he might whoop me till he was tired. 
And he did do it. If I don't make him remember it sometime. And the brow of the young man grew dark. And his eyes burned with an expression that made his young wife tremble. Who made that man my master. That's what I want to know, he said. Well, said Eliza, mournfully. I always thought that I must obey my master and mistress or I couldn't be a Christian. Sheesh, is that not un that's unreal, man. It's unfortunate. There is some sense in it in your case. They have brought you up like a child, fed you, clothed you, indulged you, and taught you, so that you have a good education that is some reason why they should claim you. But I have been kicked and cuffed and sworn at and at the best only let alone and what do I owe? I've paid for all my keeping a hundred times over. I won't bear it. No, I won't, he said, clenching his hand with a fierce frown. Eliza trembled and was silent. She was never, she had never seen her husband in this mood before, and her gentle system of ethics seemed to bend like a reed in the surges of such passions. You know poor little Carlo that you gave me, added George. The creature has been about all the comfort that I've had. He has slept with me nights and followed me around days and kind of looked at me as if he understood how I felt. <clears throat> well, the other day, I was just feeding him with a few old scraps I picked up by the kitchen door and Master come along and said I was feeding him at his expense and that he couldn't afford to have any black keep keeping his dog and ordered me to tie a stone to his neck and throw him in the pond. Oh, George, you didn't do it. Do it? Not I, but he did. Master and Tom pelted the poor drowning creature with a stone, poor thing. He looked at me so mournfully as if he were wonder, wondered why I didn't save him. I had to take a flogging because I wouldn't do it myself. I don't care. Master will find out that I'm one that whipping won't tame. My day will come yet. If he don't look out. What are you going to do? Oh, George, don't do anything wicked. If you only trust in God and try to do right, he'll deliver you. I ain't a Christian like you, Eliza. My heart's full of bitterness. I can't trust in God. Why does he let things be so? Oh, George, we must have faith. Mistress says that when all things go wrong to us, we must believe that God is doing the very best. That's easy to say for people that are sitting on their sofas and riding in their carriages, but let them be where I am. I guess it would come some harder. I wish I could be, but my heart burns and can't be reconciled anyhow. You couldn't in my place. You can't now. If I tell you, I've got to say, you don't know the whole yet. What can't be coming now? Well, lately, Master hasn't been saying that he was a fool to me. Oh, excuse me. He was a fool to let me marry off the place that hates Mr. Shelby and all his tribe because 
they are proud and hold their heads up above him and that I've got proud notions from you. And he says he won't let me come here anymore and that I shall take a wife and settle down on his place. At first, he only scolded and grumbled these things, but yesterday he told me that I should take Mina for a wife and settle down in cabin with her or he would sell me down river. Why, but you were married to me by the minister as much as if you'd been a white man, said Eliza simply. Don't you know a slave can't be married? There is no law in this country for that. I can't hold you for my wife if he chooses to part us. That's why I, I wish I'd never met you. Why I wish I'd never been born. It would have been better for us both. It would have been better for this poor child if he had never been born. All this may happen to him yet. Oh, but Master is so kind. Yes, but who knows? He may die, and then he may be sold. Excuse me. And then he may be sold to nobody knows who. What pleasure is it that he is handsome and smart and bright? I tell you, Eliza, that a sword will pierce through your soul for every good and pleasant thing your child is, is or has. It will make him worth too much for you to keep. The words smote heavily on Eliza's heart. The vision of the traitor came before her eyes, and, as if someone had struck her a deadly blow, he turned pale and gasped for breath. Excuse me, she turned pale and gasped for breath. She looked nervously out of the veranda where the boy tied of the grave conversation had retired. And where he was riding triumphantly up and down on Mr. Shelby's walk stick, she would have spoken to tell her husband her fears, but checked herself. No. No, he has enough to bear, poor fellow, she thought. No, I won't tell him. Besides, it ain't true. Mrs. Nevergon deceives us. So, Eliza, my girl, said the husband mournfully. Bear up now, and goodbye, for I'm going. Going, George? Going where? To Canada, said he, straightening himself up, and when I'm there, I'll buy you. That's all the hope that's left us. You have a kind master that, won't that will refuse to sell you. I'll buy you, and the boy, God helping me, I will. Oh, dreadful, if you should be taken. I won't be taken, Eliza. I'll die first. I'll be free, or I'll die. You won't kill yourself. No need for of that. They will kill me fast enough. They never will get me down the river alive. Oh, George, for my sake, do be careful. Don't be anything wicked. Don't lay hands on yourself or anybody else. You are tempted too much, too much. But don't go. You must be. Excuse me. You must... But go carefully, prudently, pray God to help you. Well then, Eliza, hear my plan. Master took it to his head to send me right by here with a note to Mr. Symes that lives a mile past. I believe he expected 
I should come here to tell you what I have. It would please him if he thought it would aggravate Shelby's folks, as he calls them. I'm going home quite resigned, you understand? As if all was over, I got some preparations made and there are those that will help me. And the course of a week or so, I shall be among the missing. Someday, pray for me, Eliza. Perhaps the good Lord will hear you. Oh, pray yourself, George, and go trusting in him. And you won't do anything wicked. Well, now goodbye, said George, holding Eliza's hand and gazing into her eyes without moving. They stood silent. Then there were last words and sobs and bitter weeping. Such parting as those may make whose hope to meet again is as the spider's web and the husband and wife were parted. Chapter 4, An Evening in Uncle Tom's Cabin Thank you guys for listening to the Only You Podcast, and this is Uncle Tom's Cabin by our author this month, July, Harriet Beecher Stowe. The cabin, the cabin of Uncle Tom was a small log building, close adjoining to the house as the Negro par excellence designs his master's dwelling. In front, it had a neat garden patch where every summer strawberries, raspberries, and a variety of fruits and vegetables flourished under careful tending. The whole front of it was covered by a large scarlet bougainvillea and a native multiflora rose, which, in twisting and, and tantalizing, left scarce a vestige of the rough logs to be seen. Here also in summer, various brilliant annuals, such as marigolds, petunias, four o'clocks, found indulgent corner on which to unfold their splendors, and were the delight and pride of Aunt Chloe's heart. Let us enter the dwelling. The evening meal at the house is over, and Aunt Chloe, who presided its preparation as head cook, has left two inferior officers in the kitchen the business of clearing away and washing dishes and come out into her own snug territories to get her old man's supper. Therefore, doubt not that it is her you see by the fire presiding with anxious interest over certain frizzling items in a stewing pan, and Anon, with grave consideration, lifting the cover of a baked kettle with whence steam forth indubitably intimations of something good. A round, black, shining face is hers, so glossy as to suggest the idea that she might have been washed over with white of eggs like one of her own tea rusks. Her whole plump consistency beams with satisfaction and contentment from under her well-starched checked turban, bearing on it, however, it, this always reminded me of Aunt Jemima, you guys, for some reason, this description. <laughs> but I think that was like a way the, the women dressed back then. If we must confess it, a little of that tinge of self-consciousness, which becomes the first cook of the neighborhood, as Aunt Chloe was universally held and acknowledged to be a cook she certainly was, in the very bone and center of her soul, not a chicken or turkey or duck in the barnyard, but looked grave when they saw her approaching, and seemed evidently to be reflecting on their latter end. 
and certain it was that she was always meditating on trussling. Excuse me, trussing. Stuffing and roasting to a degree that was calculated to inspire terror in any reflecting foul living. Her corn cake and all its varieties of hoe cake, dodgers, muffins, and other species too enormous to mention was a sublime mysterious to all less precise compounders and she would shake her fat sides with honest pride and merriment as she would narrate the fruitless efforts that one and another of her compeers, co-peers had had to attend excuse me, attained to her evaluation. The arrival of a company at the house, the arranging of dinners and suppers and style, awoke all the energies of her soul, and no sight was more welcome to her than a pile of traveling trunks launched on the veranda, for then she foresaw fresh efforts and fresh triumphs. Don't we all kind of get that like that when we cook for our families? We get so excited. I do. I put on jazz music, man. I I get really get into cooking. I love it. Just as present, however, Aunt Chloe is looking into the bake pan in which congenial operations we shall leave her till we finish our picture of the cottage. In one corner of it stood a bed covered neatly with a snowy spread. By the side of it was a piece of carpeting of some considerable size. On this piece of carpeting, Aunt Chloe took her stand as being decidedly in the upper walks of life, and it, excuse me, yes, and it, and the bed which it lay, and the whole corner, in fact, were treated with disgusted consideration and made so far as possible sacred from the merating inroads and desecrations of little folks. That was a lot, you guys. Jeez, that was a lot of words. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Only You podcast. In fact, that corner was the drawing room of the establishment, and the other corner was a bed of much humbler pretensions and evidently designed for use. The wall over the fireplace was adorned with some very brilliant scriptural prints and a portrait of General Washington drawn and colored in a manner which would certainly have astonished that hero if ever he happened to meet with its like. On a rough bench in the corner, a couple of woolly-headed boys with glistening black eyes and fat shining cheeks were busy superintending the first walking operations of the baby, which, as is usually the case, consisted and getting up on its feet, balancing a moment, and then tumbling down, each successive failure being violently cheered as something decidedly clever. That's actually part of the domestication of a human being. A table somewhat rheumatic in its limbs was drawn out in front of the fire and covered with a cloth, displaying cups and saucers of a decidedly brilliant pattern with other symptoms of an approaching meal. At this table was seated Uncle Tom. Mr. Shelby's best hand, who, as he is to be the hero of our story, we must get the greater. This is a hard one, y'all. The Guerrero type for our readers. I I have to find out what this means. It's a direct positive process 
creating a highly detailed image on a sheet of copper plated with a tin coat of silver without the use of a negative daguerreotype, daguerreotype I guess it's called, daguerreotype for our readers. He was a large, broad-chested, powerfully made man of a fully glossy black and a face whose truly African features were characterized by an expression of grave and steady good sense, united with much kindness and benevolence. There was something about his whole air self-respecting and dignified, yet united with a confiding and humbling simplicity. He was very busily intent at this moment on a slate lying before him on which he was carefully and slowly endeavoring to accomplish a copy of some letters in which operations he was overlooked by young Master George, a smart, bright boy of thirteen who appeared fully to realize the dignity of his position as instructor. Not that way, Uncle Tom. Not that way, he said. Briskly, as... Uncle Tom laboriously brought up the tail of his G, the wrong side out. That makes a Q, you see. La sakes, now does it, said Uncle Tom, looking with respectful, admiring air as his young teacher flourishingly squalled Qs and Gs innumerably for his edification, and then taking the pencil in his bag, heavy fingers, and patiently recognized recommenced how easy white folks alas does things said aunt chloe pausing while she was greasing a griddle with a scrap of bacon on her fork and regarding young master george with pride the way he can write now and read too and then to come out here evenings and read his lessons to us it's mighty interesting but aunt chloe i'm getting mighty hungry said george isn't that cake in the skillet almost done "'Moses! Done, Master George!' said Chloe, lifting the lid and peering in. "'Brown and beautifully. A real lovely brown. Ah, "'Let me alone for that. Missus, let Sally try to make some cake. "'T'other day, just learnt her,' she said. "'Oh, go away, Missus,' said I. "'It really hurts my feelings now to see good vitals splitting that our way.' Cake rise all to one side, no shape at all. No more than my shoe go away. And with this final expression of contempt for Sally's greenness, Aunt Chloe whipped the cover off the baked kettle and discovered to view a neatly baked pound cake, of which no city con confectioner need to have been ashamed. Then being... Evidently, the central point of the entertainment, Aunt Chloe began now to bustle about earnestly in the supper department. Here, you Moses and Peter, get out of the way, you blackens. Get out, get away, Polly, honey. Mammal, oh, excuse me, y'all. Mammyol, give her baby some fin by and by. Now, Master George, you just take off them books and set down now with my old man and I'll take up the sausages and have the first griddle full of cakes on your plate in less than no time. Then 
Want me to come supper in the house, said George, but I know what was what too well for that, Aunt Chloe. But I knew what was what too well for that, Aunt Chloe. So you did, so you did, honey, said Aunt Chloe, heaping the smoking batter cakes on his plate. You know your old Annie keep the best for you. Oh, let you let you alone for that. Go away. And with that, Annie gave George a nudge with her finger, designed to be immensely facious, and turned again to her griddle with great briskness. It's hard to read uh, the dialect and then get back into reading normally. Now for the cake, said Master George. Then the activity of the griddle department and somewhat subsided, and with that, the youngest flourished a large knife over the article in question. La bless you, Master George, said Aunt Chloe, with earnestness, catching his arm. You wouldn't be cutting it with that air great heavy knife, mash all down spile, all the pretty rise of it. Here, I've got a thin old knife. I keep sharp a purpose. There now, see? Comes part light as a feather. Now eat way. Excuse me. Now eat away. You don't get anything to beat that there, Tom Lincoln says, said George, speaking with his mouthful, that there Jenny is a better cook than you. Them Lincolns ain't much count no way, said Aunt Chloe, contemptuously. I mean, said alongside our folks, these spectable folks, enough in a kind of plain way, but as to getting up anything in style, they don't begin to have a notion on it, said Master Lincoln. Now alongside Master Shelby, good Lord, and Mrs. Lincoln, can she kinder sweep it into a room like my missus so kinder splendid, you know? Oh, go away. Don't tell nothing of them Lincolns. And Aunt Chloe tossed her head as one who ho ho excuse me, hoped she did know something of the world. Well enough. I've heard you say, said George, that Jenny was pretty fair cook. So I did, said Aunt Chloe. I may say that. Good plain common cooking. Jenny'll do. Make a good phone old bread pile. Her taters fair. Her corn cakes isn't extra. Not extra now. Jenny's corn cakes isn't but then there's fair, but Laura come to the higher branches, and what can she do? Why, she makes pies, sort, and she does, but was kind of crust. Can she make your real flaky paste as melts in your mouth and lies all up like a puff? Now, I went over there when Miss Mary was gwine. To be married, oh, okay, see, I went over thar when Miss Mary was Gwen to be married, and Jenny just show me the wedding pies. Jenny and I is good friends, you know. I never say nothing, but go long, Master George. Why, I shouldn't sleep a wink for a week if I had a batch of pies like them there. Why, a day... Want no comment 
count at all, no count at all. I suppose Jenny thought they were ever so nice, said George. Thought so, didn't she? There she was, showing them, as innocent. Yet see, it's just here, Jenny. Don't know. Lord. The family ain't nothing. She can be expected to know. Tain't no fault Oh him. Oh, Master George, you doesn't know half your privileges and ye family bringing up. Her Aunt Chloe sighed and rolled up her eyes with emotion. I'm sure, Aunt Chloe, I understand my pie and pudding privileges, said George. Ask Tom Lincoln if I don't crow over him every time I meet him. Aunt Chloe sat back in her chair and indulged in a heavy gnaw of laughter at this wittyism of young masses laughing till the tears rolled down her black shining cheeks and burying the exercise with playful slapping and poking Master Georgery and telling him to go away and that he was a case that he was fit to kill her and that he startin' Sartin would kill her. He sartin would kill her. One of these days, and between each of these predictions going off into laughter, each longer and stronger than the other, till George really began to think that he was a very dangerous, witty fellow, and that it became him to be careful how talked as funny as he could. And so you tell Tom, did ye? Oh, Lord. What young'uns will be up to? Ye crowded over Tom. Oh, Lord, Master George, if you wouldn't make a hornbug laugh. Yes, said George. I says to him, Tom, yacht see some of Aunt Chloe's pies. They the right sort, I say. Pity now, Tom couldn't, said Aunt Chloe, on whose benevolent heart the idea of Tom's benighted condition seemed to make a strong impression. Yotter. Just ask him here to dinner some o' these times, Master George, she added. It would look quite pretty of you. You know, Master George, you oughtn't feel above no, nobody on account of your privileges, because all our privileges is getting to us when I always to remember that, said Aunt Chloe, looking quite serious. And you guys, this is really actually hard to read because it's talking in a different dialect. So like, like I think this is like always is A-L apostrophe A-Y-S. And when your brain's trained to see words that you've been reading for, you know, 40 years, it's kind of hard to, uh, it's kind of hard to get down the, you know, the reading speed and the speaking speed at the same time. Well, I mean to ask Tom here some day next week, said George. And you do your prettiest, Aunt Chloe, and we'll make him stare. Won't we make him eat so he won't get over it for a fortnight? Yes, yes, certain, said Aunt Chloe, delighted. You'll see, Lord, to think of our dinners. Your mind, that air great chicken pie I made when we gave a, the dinner to Great Knox, and... Mrs. We come pretty near quarreling about that air crust. What does get into ladies sometimes? I don't know, but sometimes when a body has the heaviest kind of responsibilities on them, as ye 
may say, and is all kind of serious and taken up, D takes that air time to be hanging around and kind of interfering. Now, Mrs., she wanted me to do this way, and she wanted me to do that way, and finally I got kind of sarcy, sarcy, and says, I now, Mrs., do just look at them beautiful white hands o' yarn with long fingers and all sparkling with wind the dews on them and look at my great black stumping hands. Now how don't you think that their lord must have meant me to m make the pie crust and you to stay in the parlor? Dar, I was just so sarcy, Mr. Master George, and what did mother say, said George, say why the kinder lay fed in her eyes, dim great handsome eyes, old heron, and she say, well, Aunt Chloe, I think you are about in the right on, says she, and she went off in the parlor. She got cracked over the head for being so sarcy, but Darswart, it is. I can't do nothing the ladies in the kitchen. Well, you made out well with that dinner. I remember everybody, so said George. Didn't I? I wasn't. Excuse me. I wasn't. I want. I be. It's all, this is hard to read, really. I didn't I? And and want I behind the dining room door. That very day, and didn't see the general pass his plate three times from some more that berry pie, and says he, "You must be an uncommon cook, Miss Shelby. Lord, I was fit to split myself." Thank you guys for listening to the Only You podcast. Hopefully, you guys have enjoyed this Uncle Tom read. I love Harriet Beecher Stowe. She writes so eloquently and she captures the dialect of the time that it was really hard for me to read to you and comprehend how to say that type of dialect because I wasn't raised like that. So I don't know, or I wasn't raised around people that spoke like that. But this was the introduction to that book and hopefully you'll run out there and check it out it's free online you can find it all you have to do is pretty much i think google uncle tom's cabin and it should pop up or in the public domain thank you guys for listening to the only you podcast and again thank you for sharing me with a friend i do appreciate that and continue please sharing me with your friend i can't emphasize that enough it means so much to me, but it also helps me grow my podcast. And I had spoke earlier in the podcast at the beginning about attachment styles, and I wanted to tell you a couple other attachment styles are the avoidant attachment style or system, where it's a person that doesn't really, he's kind of closed off or she's closed off, and in a relationship, they'll sleep in separate rooms, they'll... um just sit there in the recliner, not say anything, kind of uh, distance themselves in certain areas that should be more intimate. And it's almost as though they're afraid of like intimacy and stuff. 
You guys should really check those out if you struggle with understanding some of the reasons why you act the way you do when somebody does something or if you know somebody that gets really upset really fast. Um, but there is also is the secure attachment style and that's the type of person that can really help a person that's got the anxious attachment style is the secure attachment style because they can be loving and nurturing and help that person understand that, hey, if you're more like this, life will get easier instead of getting so worked up and stressed out and been out of shape that maybe if we worked on this together and I realized that <clears throat> things I say and do can also affect your um, system and it affects how you feel about certain situations. and Because an anxious person will push the relationship until it's ended, honestly. And a secure person will continually try to save the relationship and help that person. Because they're secure enough in themselves and their being that they had you know, an upbringing of positive and reinforcements and security. And a lot of us lack that because of you know economic situations and parental separations and stuff like that but you know it is july it is minority mental health awareness month and i do want to say that that's important to learn about know about you know there's people out there suffering and struggling with mind um blowing catastrophic health issues that they don't even know about you know because it's not easy for somebody who's sick to see themselves as being psychosis or neurosis or not understanding why they're doing the things they do. And if you read many different types of psychological books, I do believe that you can find the truth in words and in books and in things that we read that other people think about. And I had told you in the past in my other podcast about the Japanese developing that dream brain scanning technology. And the more I thought about that after I had told you about it in that podcast, I had this epiphany about artificial intelligence that at some point they're going to develop a system when you're in your teens and they're going to call it something like cognitive brainwave um, workforce testing, something like that along those lines. And there, you're going to go into facilities like the unemployment office or some job skills match place, and they're going to have this technology where they hook um, sticky pads to like your temples, and then they test you with questions, and they'll know if you're lying, telling the truth, all that stuff, because you, they'll also be reading, you know, your eye movement because your pupils actually dilate, undilate. And the pupil dilates when lies are told because it's trying to um, foresee you believing them. And it tries to focus more intently. Um, but I was thinking that they will wind up hooking this apparatus up to people. And then it will get rid of all the diversity in the workplace. And work at some point in the future will no longer be work. But it will be a joyful place where people come together and you've been through the cognitive brainwave workforce testing by that time. So you've been placed in a category of people with similar mentalities, similar upbringings, 
you'll be placed, they'll actually place people for occupations. There'll be occupation placements at some point. And you won't have to worry about a manager being a manager that has no idea what he's doing or a supervisor supervising that was grandfathered into it because he had been at the company for 20 years and they just realized that he needs to not be on the floor or whatever the, the case may be. But, you know, that won't happen anymore because the brainwave testing will know from the research that they're doing in Japan right now with, like, being able to transmit your dreams onto um, digital, like a digital movie, pretty much. They'll be able to tell when you're lying and things, too, in the future with the artificial intelligence because... They recently have done a test also with artificial intelligence, um, and they put artificial in, or AI up against the human creativity, and the AI blew the human away with uh, creativity. So there's a lot going on in the artificial intelligence world, and that's where the United States is more leaning to, and that's where kind of like China is leaning to. All these different countries around the world, obviously Japan as well, they're huge in the tech market. Obviously, that's where Samsung's from and many other platforms that, you know, are out there. Thank you guys for listening, and hopefully you've learned a lot, and hopefully you like my prediction. My prediction in the future is there will be cognitive brainwave work, workforce testing, and people will be placed appropriate work, appropriately in the occupation that the testing results uh, proved. And then work won't be work. It'll actually be happy, <clears throat> and it will be more understanding in the workforce instead instead of always divided and people always in the HR office or you know you hear all kinds of different stuff at different companies but those are my thoughts and my theories so thank you guys for listening it's the only you podcast your boy Lo Jackson hopefully you enjoyed the Harriet Beecher Stowe read Uncle Tom's Cabin it's my favorite book by Harriet Beecher Stowe it's her number one selling book ever for her um and I did do a poll on my last podcast, and I asked you guys who you wanted to hear next, or what book you wanted to hear, and this was the one everyone chose, so this was the one I did. Thank you, Uncle Tom, and hopefully you'll pick this read up and continue with it, because once you do, I'm telling you, you will not be able to put it down. It'll change your neuroplasticity, you'll feel neurochemical transmission while you're reading this book because it tells you and when you're reading it you can reread the sentences and kind of understand the dialect a little bit more because you got to get intimate with the dialect and my this was my second time reading this so I'm still not totally familiar with um, the southern dialect but I enjoyed it because it gave me a perception of time difference and how we've sped up and all gotten into these systems and been forced to change and get proper grammar etiquette. And now they've gone away from proper grammar and stuff like that using LOL and all kinds of different acronyms and stuff. And it's really harmed our um, language, honestly. And everybody thinks it's a great thing using emojis and all these other language like made up languages and I get it but sometimes you gotta take things that are for granted but they should be sacred you know our language is sacred I think English is important and it's one of the greatest languages out there because it isn't as sentimental and meaningful 
as a romantic language, but the English language, I believe, is a Germanic language, and it's just so much more simple than other languages, and it's straightforward, and there's all kinds of different little jokes that you can use, and like the word salad. Uh, you know, are you? would you like a salad, or that part is salad, or he's salad. You know, those words are kind of funny. They're similar, they sound the same, but is it solid, or and salad, or... <laughs> kind of great, but thank you guys for listening, and I do appreciate you, and please continue sharing me. I, I really do appreciate it. I've seen a jump in the audience members. I'm grateful. I'm thankful. It's my second season. I'm trying to learn ways to make this podcast better. Like, hopefully this episode's a little bit easier to listen to, because I've been going back and listening to my past episodes, and I realized that I needed a cover for my mic. And that was something I didn't know because this is a growing building podcast in the making. And I'm self-made. I Nobody taught me how to do this. I just felt like this was something that I wanted to do and I wanted to put myself out there. And a couple times when I had people at work tell me about it, I got embarrassed and scared and really started panicking for a moment. And then I'm like, you know what? I only live once. I can't let every person that is a critic affect the way I feel and stop me from doing something that, you know, my kids might enjoy later down the road when I'm gone. You know, you never know. And that's kind of why I do the things I do too is for my kids. So if they wanted to come back and kind of get to know me or know what I was about, they would listen to this and realize that, hey, he was trying to help people. And that's what I'm trying to do here. And hopefully I'm helping somebody out there today. Thank you again for listening. You guys mean so much to me. I love you guys. And come back next time. I'm going to do another great read by Harriet Beecher Stowe next weekend. And I'm feeling like I'm able to do this uh, one every weekend with my schedule of work and stuff. And it's really working out. And hopefully you guys are enjoying hearing a new episode every weekend. I'm trying my best. And I'm really enjoying doing, um, you know, authors and all their different reads and learning about them. Because Harriet Beecher Stowe, what a fanatical, what an awesome woman. You know, just be way beyond her time and understanding of... The seriousness and intricacies behind slavery and anti-slavery and how we progressed since then and how beautiful we have become. Even though, you know, the news always wants to be us to be divided. I don't think we are. I don't feel like that at all. Not one ounce. And again, thank you guys for listening. Until next time, it's Harriet Beecher Stowe Month and it's Minority Mental Health Awareness Month. Thank you so much again.